All right, we are live. There's your fingers. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. We have uh, season four, episode three, live tonight. We have our amazing guest, Brianna Hodges, who I am so excited for you guys all to get to know and talk to and learn from. And we have AJ Giuliani and John Spencer, authors of Empower, joining us tonight. Everybody is here. Nobody's in airports. We have a few in hotel rooms, but it's going to be a fun night, and hopefully we have some good connection, and um, it's easy to hear everybody. So I just want to first shout out the crew today for all the amazing blogs. Um, it's great to see the connections. Always love um, your posts, love seeing what you guys are learning, and always love how you're connecting with one another. So thank you. Keep doing that. Make sure you're commenting and sharing one another's. That's how we learn and that's how we grow. And we are going to dive in tonight. Our theme for this week is innovating inside the box. So it's amazing to have Brianna here who really is in a school district doing this work, learning, growing, and continuing to share all that she does. So I'm going to turn it over to Brianna mm -hmm. to share a little bit about who she is. And first, before I do that, I, just, I had a chance to, we, find, I think we met almost a year ago. I don't even know when it was. But I was immediately just drawn into her story and the way she approaches her work. And I'm super excited to have you here tonight. Well, you know, um, us English teachers, we're, we're good people. So especially middle school English teachers, we got to, you know, we got to represent. We got to definitely you know, kind of change the world one step at a time. But um, I'm pretty sure all four of us have been middle school language arts teachers at one point in time. So there I'm not going to lie. There is a thing about middle school language arts teachers. That, that is that's yeah. very true. That's very true. Um, we are definitely the bravest souls of the bunch for sure. But um I am, um, I am um, the director of digital learning for Stephenville ISD um, in Texas, and we are a fairly small rural um, area. We went um, through our one-to-one -one initiative, I guess. Uh, we refer to that as our iChampion learning evolution um, about three years ago, and um, I've been fortunate to be a part of it from the very beginning, and um, one of the things that, that we've done is um, our situation is really unique because we have two grade levels per campus, so we started out with our third graders, and we rolled up. And um, it was a really great opportunity to really just kind of build the learning experience. And um, we got a lot of pushback from our high school, I will say, because they wanted to be first. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been really fun because they were the kind of culmination of that. And uh, just to kind of watch the experiences with that has been um, very eye-opening for both our teachers as well as our students as well as our parents. And uh, anyhow, so it's been um, it's been a really great experience. Along the way, um, we were uh, really fortunate to be one of the very first cohort groups with Digital Promise, and um, then we're accepted into the League of Innovative Schools um, last year. So in addition to that, we do a lot of work with Future Ready and the Alliance for Excellent Education, and I am also honored to be um, one of the advisors for the instructional coach strand um, for Future Ready as well. So that's kind of the nutshell of, of what all um, I do. And uh, I, I'm 
pretty big advocate for um, how do we maintain the pedagogical practice of what it is that we do um, as opposed to just being that digital learning person. Um, I, I do give a lot of pushback to the title of digital learning, even though I um, kind of named myself whenever uh, we developed this um, role. But uh, I, I think that too often, whenever we, we categorize it by that way, um, it gives the message that there is um, quote unquote, real world or real learning, and then there's digital learning. And, and so I think the more that we can kind of encapsulate that together and, and look at that from that standpoint, it's a, a lot easier to um, look at it as that kind of evolution and experience of, of where learning is going. So there you go. Love it. Thank you. Um, and I, I know that is a shift that's happening in a lot of places or that needs to happen in a lot of places, really looking at curriculum and instruction and technology as two separate things rather than how they work together and support one another. So I'm going to open that question up. I'm going to leave that to John or AJ and think about what are some ways that you guys have seen in schools connecting technology and pedagogy and really um, think about innovative practices in schools and districts? Want me to take it, John? I got yeah, go for it. So uh, I would I would say one of the cool things about my role is uh, my role is director of tech and innovation, and so uh, I'm kind of merging both of them, right? The instructional technology plus the office of teaching and learning, and so almost everything we do in our district merges those things. Uh, not exclusively though, because there's a lot of technology that happens without teaching and learning, and there's a lot of teaching and learning that happens without technology. Um, so I don't think they're, they're always merged. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in a bidding war right now for new course switches. So that has nothing to do really with teaching and learning. Uh, but, but I think what, what's really cool about um, a lot of these new roles that are coming up is that it's just about the, the learning and the pedagogy that's happening. And, um, you know, for years and years, you would go to tech conferences and it would be all about like sessions on tools and all those different types of things. But I've seen this growing trend, whether I'm in my own district or in other districts or at conferences, that people really are talking about what's the purpose? What does it actually look like in the classroom? And what are the outcomes that we want to see uh, from our students during these? So I know in my district, one of the big things that we do is talk about what do we want the learning to look like? And uh, what are the outcomes for the students? And then tech and all those other things kind of come secondary to that. I think that's one thing I always want to see. I keep asking in these conferences, when are we not going to have a separate technology conference and then a separate pedagogy conference? If we expect this to change in classrooms, it has to change at the district level. It has to change at the systemic level. If we're really separating these things, instead of this is just how we learn because this is how we live and work, then, I mean, I, I don't know how we expect a teacher, teachers to make sense of that in the classroom when it's not something that we do on a larger level. Absolutely. John, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. You know, and, and I, I really think, you know, on one hand, technology is, is, is awesome. Like, we, need, we do need to be talking about, like, how it changes the world, um, we do need to be having conversations about the connective and, and the creative uh, capacity of technology because that is exciting. Um, but what drives it is the pedagogy, is the human connection, is, is all of that. You know, um, my most powerful learning experience um, 
was doing this history day project and, and that shaped everything I believe about teaching and learning and project-based learning and student ownership and everything. Um, and it was on a slide, like it was a Kodak slide projector with these white slides that you had to develop at Walgreens. And like the way I, I edited audio was with, um, uh, scotch tape and this big magnetic reel that you would like splice up with a, uh, a razor. And the bottom line is I learned all of these really important 20th century technology skills, like unjamming a projector or um, how to deal with um, how to, how to find good uh, microfiche or whatever. And none of those matter anymore. They're all outdated. Um, you know, the only thing that I look at from like my childhood that's still used are those like amazing smelling markers and great pencils and all of that. Like those are still around, but all of the technology that we used was gone. But what's transferable and what's powerful and what stayed forever has been getting to think critically, getting to be creative, getting to problem solve, all of that. And um, to me, that that's why like, when, when, when people get um, focused on the, the technology, what they're going to end up inevitably do, doing is, is getting obsessed with the novelty. And to me, like what lasts, what's timeless is, is the learning. Sorry. That felt... No, I think that that's super important. Get off my yard. <laughs> like old curmudgeon or something. But... I just pulled out, I was cleaning out my desk drawers behind me and I just found like Kodak negatives and my kids were like, what are those? And I started laughing, trying to explain to them, like, I used to take pictures. I used to bring them to a store. They would develop them. And like this innovation in my life was like one day, I didn't have to wait seven days. Um, and they were like, so bored halfway through the conversation. They were like, this is like, I don't even understand what you're talking about. But to your point, John, these things go away. If you get stuck on the thing instead of the process and the learning and the creativity, those will change. And it's the pace of acceleration is continuing. We will have more and more innovations and better ways of doing things. We have to focus on the creative process and how we do things to leverage the different tools that are that we have to our advantage. Well, and I think it's also important to to leverage those different types of media that come into it because just like there are some people who want to, you know, truly leverage, um, whether it's, you know, video or video editing or, or, or different things like that. And some just want to use pen and paper and they want to tell their story through, you know, even animations or, or different, you know, just situations where it, it's really, you know, the, one of the great things about, leveraging instructional technology right now is that we can really tell the story the way that we see it in our minds instead of being kind of isolated into these very specific situations. So when we talk about like student ownership and all of those, how can we differentiate to allow for choice to best represent that student and that learner outside of just saying like, hey, I want everybody to create a PowerPoint. It's going to have five slides. You need to have your title slide here. You need to have this, you know, font size or whatever, and really kind of limit those choices in there. Yeah, John, I think you are like my favorite, like artist and sketch. The things you can put together in a video are absolutely amazing. Um, I often have ideas and I'm like, oh, could John put that in a video? But like, I think of like the, the creativity that you 
that you have, but how that could be limited by saying you have to do it a certain way. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, so how many times, because I definitely don't have those skills. Like I would like to believe that I do. I, I, but I, you know, I always say that like how many people are really challenged by drawing a stick figure. Right. And so like, if you look at that learner and you say, Hey, I want you to do this project and it's going to take them 17 hours or 17 seconds. And they're still going to come up with the same stick figure. Like how much critical thinking is that learner than going to put into that experience. Whereas if you provide them with opportunity where they can, you know, kind of become Steven Spielberg and, and really kind of represent this genius in, in lots of different ways um, and, and take what's in their mind and actually put it into action, then you're going to have that critical engagement and, and opportunity for them to kind of divide, um, divide up their mind and, and, and make it happen even better. I'm going to jump into a question that I have because this week is focused on innovating inside the box. So I'm going to ask AJ as director of innovation. What is its actual title? Yeah. Tech and innovation. Tech and innovation. All right. That fits. So I'm wondering, like you've seen a lot of change in your school district. You've talked about a lot of change in schools. What are some, of the most innovative practices that you're seeing that are really changing how we learn in schools, how we teach in schools that, that like given the constraints that exist are really, are really happening and people are actually making those changes. Yeah. So I work in a, a real public school district, right? Um, so in the state of Pennsylvania that has common core standards and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, with a budget that every year we're trying to raise taxes uh, so I, I think, and John just wrote a post about this, which was uh, kids need to do real projects. And I think that's the biggest piece that I'm seeing, which is the learning is becoming so much more authentic. So whether that is uh, students at our high school um, partnering with Fox Chase Cancer Center to start a Gen X cancer class, um, or partnering with Drexel University to go down and work on real cadavers while they're in high school instead of paying six years tuition to figure out if they want to be in medical school and work on, on dead people. Um, or uh, if it's a, a partnership with uh, St. Joe's uh, University and University of Pennsylvania uh, with our AP psych students and our biology students who are doing uh, experiments on rats and then building their own rat lab in our high school. So like all of these are, are kind of like... Uh, truly authentic experiences where the kids aren't just doing work for the teacher, right? So that the game of school has been completely shattered. It's not just for fridge art. It's not just for the teacher. It's for themselves, but it's for a bigger audience. So when we have middle school students um, that as part of their math class are creating actual products that they're going to bring uh, to a nursing home uh, and using the math to create those products, like that to me is the biggest change that I'm seeing in schools is that because of the technology allows us to connect with people and find mentors and all those different types of things, um, we're able to have experiences that, you know, I, I never had when I was in school, uh, those authentic pieces. And, and, and because it's like a snowball, right, where, where one teacher does it and then one class does it and then the kids see it and they talk about it. It's grown so large in my school district that every time we host people for visits, and we, we do so probably four or five times a month of, of visiting schools, or you know, we just had a, a delegation from China, 25 educational leaders visit. 
even though they're asking a lot of questions about all the different things, it always comes down to those bar- partnerships and and everybody is kind of awestruck of how you get there. And we just respond. All you have to do is write an email. All you have to do is make a call. There's nothing fancy to it. There's not like you have to have some big program, MOU, blah, 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 blah. List 20 organizations that you think you could partner with and just email them. Have the kids email them. And I guarantee you're going to have that authentic connection come out. So that's, to me, the big piece of, of learning that I've seen that has kind of shifted the corner in the past number of years. That's such a good point, AJ. I think we, um, in a lot of ways, overcomplicate things in education. And like you said, you don't need an organization and you don't need to have a, you can really just send emails. I have organizations tell me all the time, how do we partner with schools? How do we do this work? And people want to help schools, but they don't know how. They don't want to just send in money. They want to actually be part of this work. There's lots of actual companies that put this in their companies. Memorandum that, that people have time to work with schools. Um, one of my colleagues, Ed Hidalgo, if you've read the book, I mentioned him a few times, just had a conversation about NEPRIS. You can bring in people using NEPRIS. People just, there's free calls. You can have experts. But people are looking to connect with kids because they also want to have an impact in their life. They want to see the work they do makes, it makes a difference as well. So yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, and it's just it's the teachers too being empowered and being supported by their administrators. We had a life skills teacher and a business teacher who were talking about how all the uh, life skills students, a lot of them were working at the, a local shop, right? And they got a, got talking and collaborating because they had some time to do that. And they asked the principal, "Hey, dude, can we reach out to shop, right?" He's like, "Go ahead." They reach out to shop, right? Now we have a full functioning shop, right, inside of our school that our kids work at, and our kids also run the business side of it as a class for credit and teachers go in there and shop all the time. Anybody can come in. It's a real register, real everything. It's, it's stocked every single week that happened because a couple teachers got together, but also were supported and were made time for by administration and kind of praised to do that as well. So I think that that other end of it is a big piece of administration, really empowering the staff to do some of those things. So that was a question I want to ask you, Brianna, is you, we talked earlier about how do you empower people to do this work? Like as a coach, as someone who's kind of, who's like up with teachers, supporting them in this work, working with administrators, how do you empower people and support them to understand what's possible and to make these changes in their classroom? So one of the things, um, I kind of have a couple thoughts on this. One of them is, uh, so I have a little bit of a unique situation in that I am graduated from the same school that I now serve in. And, um, and so because of that, it's a, you know, a small community. And so one of the things that we, um, are really challenged by is helping our students, you know, kind of piggybacking on AJ saying about the, um, authentic experience of like, okay, so what happens? How are you actually going to do something beyond this community, like what's out out there impossible. And so one of the things that I did was I reached out to a lot of um, the people that I graduated with and said, okay, hey, what are you doing now? Can you, you know, hop on a hangout with us and and kind of walk through these situations? And um, one of the guys that I went to high school with is the senior sound guy for Blizzard Entertainment. So they make this little game called World of Warcraft. Yeah, just a little little game, game, right? Like. Especially like if you're if you're in middle school, right? You kind of think it's a pretty cool deal, right? And so what is that? I've never heard of it. That's... It was it was pretty fantastic to you know kind of bring in this opportunity, and um and, and so it was it was awesome because Jay basically he went to 
his people was at, at Blizzard and said, you know, we, I want to show these kids like how I went from this tiny little Texas town to, you know, being here in California and coming up with, you know, what are these noises that these, you know, people make like these, these, you know, mythic creatures that there's not really, you know, how do we even come up with what they sound like, what they look like, you know, all their actions and everything like that. And so we actually had to sign some agreements that said that we wouldn't, you know, um, publicize like their little secret mixes and all these different things. But it was so awesome for him to, you know, kind of represent this of like how, um, you know, his kind of journey of how he went from, um, you know, from being, you know, in Stephenville, Texas to, to kind of having that. And so, um, so I say that because sometimes we forget about that opportunity that it's not just these massive corporations or organizations or things like that. It can be something as, um, as genuine as, Hey, you know, here's a community member and this is what they've done, or they have a, a family member who's doing something and um, we want to showcase, like, what does that look like um, in that environment? So um, then the other part is um, I often challenge our teachers and our administrators to, um, so I, I, I steal this from um, what I used to do in my classroom as an English teacher, um, when we would kind of walk through how do we, um, in, in, in um, approaching, like, persuasive texts and things like that. I would have our kids, um, I, I called it our heartbreak story. So like, how do they identify with something that is a social concern? And um, so they would kind of walk through like, how did it break their heart? And then why do they want to um, make a change that way? So I challenge our teachers and our administrators to think about a student who is kind of maybe slipping through the cracks. Like, not the kid who's like knocking it out of the park, no matter what, that like could have the cardboard box as a teacher and would still be doing amazing things. But that kid who's not reached, that is, um, you know, just struggling, whether it's because of content or whether it's because he, you know, maybe isn't assessing the way that um, uh, the state believes that he should, because, you know, we have those lovely little standardized tests. And, um, you know, so how can we improve that environment for them? And um, when they're able to come in and really kind of leverage that opportunity, then um, it helps them kind of move beyond this, oh, here's this instruction initiative that administration is asking us to do, and we're just going to go in here and check the box because this is something that, um, that we've been asked. And, uh, and, and so that's been um, a really great opportunity for us to, to kind of walk through that and um, get some ownership from our teachers as they um, – kind of challenge themselves to, to, um, improve that situation. It also helps us move beyond this. Um, we can't do this because you're asking us to do too much. Um, it really kind of humanizes that experience for our teachers to, to move from the, Oh, I'm just a teacher and I'm not the one who can actually make the change to you're darn right. I'm just a teacher and I'm going to change this, this whole world for this kid. And how, um, how am I going to, you know, help them, um, be the great, the great kid that they are because we we don't accept it as a teacher to have a, a student walk in and say oh I'm just not good at writing or I'm just not good at math we we do everything that we can to connect to that kid and bring our content alive for them and so it's really kind of been that um how do we empower them and, and help them you know use their passion for good in that situation yeah, empower is such a thing. I mean, we have these guys. I feel like there's a book about that, like how to empower people. <laughs> Heard about something. Heard it has some good good drawings in it too, some nice sketches. <laughs> Surprise, so I, I, 
<laughs> so I just want to uh, kind of share a thought uh, about this. And it's, although I think it's important to launch to an audience, I mean, AJ and I have had this conversation. Uh, we obviously wrote launch, right? Um, <laughs> and although, it, although it's cool to have, you know, community partners and all of that, I think that one of the coolest things I see happening is teachers taking creative risks that don't lead to projects that would necessarily be shared at a conference or, or in the keynote or anything. And they don't seem like a big deal to um, the rest of the world necessarily, but they're a big deal to the kids in the room. And they're not happening on, they're not happening every so often. They're happening all the time. And so to me, I, like when I, when, when I think of like amazing things I see happening all the time in schools, I'm thinking like um, on this topic of think inside the box, right? Like it's the number of teachers who are doing cardboard challenges and kids are like actually prototyping stuff every yeah. day. It's the number of kids who like the teacher didn't have any budget so they have raspberry pi and arduino and one pack of snap circuit and they've managed to create this like totally awesome set of centers that kids are rotating around and they don't have a fancy makerspace but they've turned their class into a makerspace it's the number of teachers who are like my kids are going to blog and they're going to send it to a real audience and they're going to write about things that they love about and to me that i think is what's exciting is to see all of these teachers who could be handing out worksheets and packets that are saying instead, my kids are going to be makers. My kids are going to be thinkers. My kids are going to be creating on a regular basis. And I don't know if it's going to work or not, but we're going to try it. And they're taking the constraint of what's there, no money, few supplies, whatever it may be. And they're saying uh, limited time, tight curriculum map. And they're saying, we're going to make something awesome with this constraint. And I think that goes back to what AJ was talking about. You don't have to have this huge partnership. You don't have to, you mentioned like this perfect project. Um, we've talked a lot about in all three books, this notion of like perfection being um, one of the major constraints and it holds people back because you think you have to have this great project. They suck a lot of times to begin with. The first time you try something, it's not great. You yeah. know like having the first draft of a lot of things is not great. The first, the first attempt. And I think that, you know, that's what I try and challenge a lot to share this process because the first time you put something out there, it's, it's, it's a first draft. It's, and, um, we're afraid of that in education. We're afraid of that as teachers, as principals and thinking we need to have this, have it perfected. And there's lots of really pretty lesson plans and lots of great ideas and then you go and meet the kids and things are not the same, you know, and so John, this is actually a question I have for you too. Like you're working with pre-service teachers. We are teaching our teachers from day one that like a five page lesson plan is the way to do it and to over prepare and have this perfect lesson plan so that you know what to expect every minute. I mean, I was taught and I went through a program, but I was taught script out what the kids are going to say. They didn't say that when I watched. Yeah, it What do you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and, and a lot of states have things like the the EdTPA, which gets them to do um, that to the extreme. And and you know that was, I guess, sort of a topic that we got into last week that I, that I loved was this whole idea of like, can you can you do a great job and still take care of yourself and work fewer hours and stuff? And I would say like decide where you're going to cut corners um, because you're going to need to cut corners to do, to do things well. And um, to me, like the, the cutting corners was I'm not going to have hyper detailed scripted lesson plans because in the end um, you're going to be calling audibles all the time. You're going to be modifying things and adjusting things. And um, it, it's more about getting the fundamentals right about what kind of, like what kind of cool projects you want kids to be doing, um, connecting to what you really deep down inside want them to learn. Um, and, and that's exactly it. You know, it doesn't have to be the scripted lesson plan. It also doesn't have to be the most beautiful, you know, Pinterest worthy classroom. And it doesn't, I mean, there's all these things connected to what we think it's supposed to look like. Um, and really like the bottom line is getting into the perspective of the student and, and getting into the, as much as you can into their mind in terms of surveys and, and interviews and even just empathy and asking what really matters to them. And then from there, which, which I love, I love that, that thought that you had, uh, Rihanna about like the story of the student, like getting into that and then ultimately asking what really empowers them. Um, and chances are, it's not a scripted lesson plan. Like, it's probably not that at all. So I feel like I gave a long answer to a simple question. But yeah, no. it drives me crazy in higher ed um, because it does set the tone for an, an unrealistic side. And people will spend too much time on the things that don't matter mm. and not enough time on the things that do. So that's a perfect segue. I know AJ has to leave us to go swim practice because he is juggling all the things. Um, <laughs> ask you to answer this and then you can rock out and do your dad stuff. Um, so the, this notion of, you just mentioned this, John, about people are different, obviously different things, um, inspire them. So Todd Rose talks about jaggedness in the myth of average and, you know, people have mm -hmm. different, different strengths. Um, so I'm wondering, AJ, before you leave us, let us know, like, how do you craft opportunities? You're at the district office. How do you, as at the district office, or how do you see this happening for teachers and or students to really showcase who they are as individuals and learn at, learn in ways that empower them? I think the, uh, the biggest mistake district administrators or even building-based administrators make is uh, is to be the one that has all the ideas. I think it is by far the leading cause of teacher burnout, of ideas not spreading, of initiatives failing, is because it's just one person or an upper-level committee's idea, and then everybody's just supposed to fall in line. And it's just treating people to be compliant, because if it's your idea and you want them to do it, then it's the same thing as being a teacher and just telling the kids to do this, this, and this. Uh, so I tried to not have any ideas, really. Um, I tried to get into conversations with people and ping pong back ideas and things like that. But my main goal is to do four things, is to allow uh, for teachers and any staff member 
to have ideas and to have a forum to share those things and to feel like they're valued. Uh, I try to make time uh, for the folks uh, to have those conversations. I try to support uh, what's already happening and build those pockets into bigger kind of cultures of of creativity and uh, to showcase that. And then I try to praise uh, those things so that, you know, as Albert Bandura's social learning theory, if you praise something, you don't have to get praised individually, but if you see a peer getting praised, you'd want to do what they do as well. And so uh, I think partially my role is just to uh, listen and learn and then lead um, mostly by doing those four things. And I've worked with so many different administrators uh, that have been praised for being the ones that have the ideas. Um, and then at, at some point in time, that really hurts the organization uh, big time. So in, in my district, uh, when the teachers have ideas, those things fly, man. They, you got runners, you get buy-in, people are doing awesome stuff. Uh, John uh, spoke at a TEDx that was happening at my one district, and, and he can tell you um, the students ran the whole thing. And, uh, you know, and, and the cool thing is they wanted to run the whole thing, right? Like, like no one told them to do that. It was their idea doing the green room and getting everything set up and doing the theater stuff behind the scenes and, and all that kind of thing. And I, those are the experience, you know, those are the experiences that we want. And so I, I think, you know, when, when you talk about how do you, how do you build that and, and create that capacity, the, the main thing is to not to be the idea person, even if your title is director of innovation. <laughs> <laughs> Very innovative. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. I appreciate you jumping in. I know your schedule is super tight and we are grateful for your, your thoughts. It was fun. Have no ideas, but grateful for you to join the conversation. Yeah, I have no ideas. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Brianna, I'm going to throw that same question to you. Being in a district too, and you're in a similar role as AJ. So, how do you support people to create um, create those experiences for them, and how do you support them to do that for the students in their classrooms? I think, um, you know, I think one of the things I'm a big proponent that, uh, and I know that there's definitely people have, have definitive ideas on this as well, but, um, I, I think that sometimes we, um, we box ourselves in by saying that children and adults learn differently. Um, I, I, I definitely do not subscribe to that way of thinking. I think that, um, what separates us is our lens of experience. And obviously the, um, there are many adults who don't have some of the same experiences that young children have because of just circumstances and, and things like that and vice versa. Um, but I think that one of the things that, you know, all of us have kids um, on the call. And I think that, you know, you think about your own children when they're um, coming to you with excitement in their voice and they're so jazzed about telling you this thing that they just, they came up with. You would never look at your kid and go, oh gosh, that's so 10 years ago. Why did you just now come up with this? I mean, where have you been? <laughs> You know, but we have a tendency as adults to treat other adults that way. And um, so, so I'm in, I'm in Jersey right now working with, uh, with the district and, and um, one of the, the conversations that came up today was um, 
how, especially in these uh, digital learning, ed tech, innovative roles that we in coaching experiences want to tell other people like the newest, coolest thing ever, because we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to kind of come up with those things. And, um, and so it's kind of like how we show what we know, but then what does that communicate to our teachers. Like if they're already nervous about being able to keep up with this technology and then we in our roles are, you know, saying, oh yeah, but then you could also do this and you could also do this and you could also do this and you kind of overwhelm them. Are you kind of communicating that idea of if you're not at this level, then you're not able to compete and play. And so um, I, I guess kind of where I'm going with that is I think it's really, really important for us to um, support and praise everyone at the level that they're at. And if they're willing to jump in and they're willing to try something, then, um, you know, being supportive of, of that and that experience and not, um, you know, kind of casting them out because it wasn't according to the innovative plan that we developed as a district. You know, um, some of us come to terms a little bit, uh, at different times um, than others do. Uh, some people want to watch and see how other people have experienced it before they, you know, is the pool cold? I want to know if other people think it's cold before I jump in, right? And so, so they kind of want to feel it out as they as they go through that. Um, but I think I think that that's been one of the, our big pieces um, as well in the district is is just you know checking that out. Um, I guess the, the last part that I'm going to say on that is I, I feel like sometimes um, the educational uh, industry's love of the term best practices sometimes um, can, uh, can can kind of stifle us in that experience as well. Again, having um, having more than one child of my own, you know, I, I always say that, like, how many of you, you know, how, did you have the first child that was just so compliant, so wonderful, you know, like my oldest, if I looked at him and said one, two, you know, he would like straighten up and, and stop breathing and, and fall into line with whatever um, I was asking him to do. But my youngest, if I say one, two, she puts her hands on her hips and looks at me and she's like three, four, five, you know, and it's, and, and I was, you know, taken aback by this. I mean, I, I I, I thought I had it down. I thought I was a really good mama, you know, with the first one. And then the second one comes out all sassy. I don't know where she got that from, but, um, can't imagine. I can't imagine, you know, for this child, I've prayed kind of thing, but, um, it is, uh, it, I, I think it's one of those things where, um, we think that just because it's been done well, this one time that that's what we want every single person to, um, to just kind of lather, rinse, repeat that. And if we wouldn't want that for our students, why would we want that for our teachers? There's so many thoughts I have on that, Brianna, but I think for me, there's this tension around, like you mentioned, the, the innovators, and there's these, this stigma around people who are trying new things and using new tools um, and, and pushing that on other people and saying, like, you're not a good teacher if you're not using all these new things, or here's this best practice. Why aren't you trying this? Um, and I, I think it does a disservice in our, our schools to the culture, but like ultimately to kids. And if this badge of like, I'm, I'm good because I use all these new apps versus what are my kids learning? And I just think, you know, George talks about an innovator's mindset. I know we all have, have really focused on this point that really it's about pedagogy. It's about what the kids are learning, but what the individuals are learning, not what the greatest, latest technology that you're using. 
And I think that is one of the barriers that comes in in classrooms and it comes in our schools is that we're always trying to add more. In, and and I and I feel this is the the sketch note that I want you to do, John. It's like this like layer of more and more and more that is just like suffocating our teachers. It's suffocating our kids because we think that we keep having to add on more instead of trying to really figure out this integration. What do we want kids to learn? What do we want them to know and do? What are the best ways to learn that? And, and try and figure out how do we integrate all of these ideas and the best practices and what's, what's that next step. And then what conditions do we need to support that? Um, and, you know, I talk about this in the book as the innovation ecosystem, rather than like we're PBL and AVID and thinking maps and no excuses. And there's all these programs. What is it that we really believe about good teaching and learning and how do we lead in a way that helps make sure that that happens? Um, so I just, I think that's, that's really important and it's really hard to do because I have sought, sat with so many teachers who are just frustrated and they feel like they are just demeaned by their colleagues because they don't know the latest and greatest, but they really care about their kids and they want them to do really well. Well, I, and I, I think there's also, there's also there's a, of, um, we're all after this personalized experience for our kids. We want them to own their learning and it to be very unique to them. But we are also um, kind of held captive in this standardized world. So how do you have a personalized experience in a very regimented, standardized situation, right? And we, have edu- as educators, have done this you know, to ourselves, as well as, you know, from a, from a social standpoint of, well, um, we want this this, um, you know, we want this experience to be the same for everybody. That whole, what is fair, right? Like I had a teacher who used to say, fair is a place where you go to get a, a corny dog and, and ride the Ferris wheel, you know, but, but at the same point in time, it's that how, um, we want this equitable and accessible, um, environment for our kids, but it's also really difficult to, to kind of wrap that personalized experience, um, within that constraint, because what is going to work really well for John might not work well for you. And, um, and, and how do we become okay with it? Knowing that we're also going to have to answer to the parents of, of well, how come Bobby got this grade? Um, and, and this is the quality work for their student. Did. I want to know how it all kind of adds in together. So, John, I want to get your thoughts on that because I know you have some really good ones, but I want to first just pause. We are at about 15 minutes left, and after John shares his insights, we're going to answer some questions from the viewers. So if you have a question, throw it on Twitter. Make sure you hashtag iMOOC so I can see it, and we will answer your questions. But I'm going to let John share some of his thoughts on on that before we, before we answer questions. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, um, that's, I think it goes back to that idea of being focused on the novelty rather than on what's, what's timeless, what's sustainable. You know, um, I, I remember, when I taught self-contained and, um, you know, they wanted to, we had really high reading scores. And so the district was, you know, asking about like, what, what's, let's talk about the strategies being used and this and that. And, um, 
I was regularly being told there's a new term for it, right? Like, well, I was like, well, all of my students really know the objective. You mean the learning target? Okay, all right. Well, they're learning targets now. Okay, whatever. Um, in this, in the course of this conversation, and the district office people were really kind. Like, they weren't, they weren't bad, but it, it was like, in the end, what I was saying, like, what really allowed them to do well in reading is that we read, <laughs> like that. Students spent 35 minutes a day silently reading for fun. Uh, and again, I was like, so, you know, it's it's basically SSR, which is what I grew up with. And they were like, oh, no, 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 don't call it SSR. Call it anything else. Just don't call it that because that's not what it is anymore. And I was like, well, okay. Uh, but, it, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a journal anymore. It's an interactive notebook. It's, you know, the terms are always changing. Um and, and there's slight tweaks, and there's nothing wrong with a new term. And there's nothing wrong with coming up with something different. Um, wow. Sorry, someone's calling me. <laughs> Not my phone. All right, so. Sorry. So, so I just think, you know, I'm all, I love this idea of exploring new, new ideas and finding new strategies and everything. But I really think that what should be driving us is the question of, like, innovating out of a desire of finding what's best, not what's new. And I know that's something George talks about a lot, but it's, you know, because we do get fixated on those, on the novelty, and then it is this weird one-upmanship about who knows what. And like, I get that all the time, like, because my specialty is technology at the university, and they'll say, you don't know Blink app? And I'm like, there are thousands of new apps every single day on the, on the, the iTunes store, like, or the app store, like, I, I'm not going to be able to keep up on what's new, but I'm going to do my best to try and keep up with um, what works and what's best for kids. And that's what's going to always excite me. So I don't know if I responded to what you said well enough. I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I love that. Anytime you focus on students and, and same thing, I'm always like, well, Katie, you're the ed tech girl. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm about teaching and learning, and I just happen to work in a center, you know, I used to, that focuses on how to use technology. But we get we get pigeonholed in that. I dream of a world one day where you're not the pedagogy person or the tech person, where you're about learning, and you have different roles to support that. And ultimately, we all just know we're fo focused on kids. And I think, Brianna, you mentioned that. Like, your role, you're actively fighting against the title. There, there will be a day soon, and I see it on the horizon, where we all are just there to focus on learning, and, and we use the tools that support us, and there's great tools to do that, um, and it won't be so divisive. So I have a question for you guys. Um, Lindsay Babzak, I hope I didn't butcher that like George does sometimes, but um, if I did, I apologize. How can we empower and inspire our colleagues to try along with us by sharing and not just get received as bragging or doing more? That's a good question. I see that a lot. So just how do, how do we share and inspire people without like, oh, you think you're so great? So I think that a lot of that has to do with how we're saying things, like our messaging that comes along with that. Um, you know, 
are, is it the, Hey, this is something that I tried or is this, let me just tell you how you need to do things, you know? And I, I think that there are, um, I, I think that words matter. And I think that the, um, the intention and, and how we are, um, kind of positioning that is what becomes really, really important. Um, I think it's also, um, you know, where does that focus go? Is the, is the focus for the student learning? Is it for, you know, this is the outcome, the expectation that we were trying to achieve and, and we're putting that out there? Or is it the, you know, let me tell you the, about the fantastic cake that I baked this weekend and, and it's going to change your life. You know, where is that going to come in? And I have an idea uh, connected to this as well. And it's, it's that um, teachers, every teacher wants to be validated. And I remember when we were, um, the district had some really good initiatives uh, when I was a, a teacher and um, they, they wanted um, to get teachers on board. And um, at the site-based level, they wanted us to do some professional development. And I was excited about um, these changes, but I also knew just because it was um, new, there would be resistance. And um, and what happened was it was grassroots. It, like it started at the bottom, and a lot of people were doing cool stuff at the bottom, and it kind of like moved its way up to the top. But then there were people that didn't want that at the top and or at the bottom, you know, and they were just negative about it. They didn't want to hear the stories, whatever. Um, and I realized like what they wanted was they wanted validation for the good stuff that they had been doing for a long time and that they wanted to hear that they weren't bad. And they wanted to hear that change that they didn't just need to change. Like that was how it was coming across. And, you know, to someone who's been doing like really cool, say writer's workshop stuff to be told, Hey, you should try out, um, this, you know, having student choice and having blocking and, um, or, you know, and that's a bad example. It was, it was really connected to kind of something different. I'm trying to be careful with mm-hmm. what I'm saying. But the, the bottom line is they were doing really cool stuff and they needed that to be validated. And it wasn't validated first before they were asked to change. And then the second piece is um, in order to get people who would be reluctant about that, um, and who would just view it as boasting or whatever, um, they needed to have their expertise validated as well. So not just being told that they're good, but they wanted their opinion to matter. And so I remember um, with us, we we took the three most reluctant teachers who were all actually good teachers, and we um, brought them on board to be part of the five teachers leading training. And I said, I you are an expert in these things and I want you to give feedback so we don't screw up what's already working and they were like the guardians of what's already working and oddly enough that was enough to like steer it toward the direction of something positive and it wasn't manipulative it wasn't like oh we're gonna pull you in to get you on board it was like no no that you need to be validated for years of what you've done that was awesome and um and so I think that's a part of it too. Like um, we need to be building on the strengths of the good things that teachers have already been doing. Yeah. I think John, there's a lot of this notion that like new is just like always adding, adding more instead of like, there are some really amazing practices. And I think you brought this up last week. Like 
John Dewey's been writing about this stuff for a long time. We have a lot of people talking about like authentic project-based learning, like real world stuff. This is not a new notion, but it hasn't not necessarily um, fit perfectly in this box of standardization that has become more common um, with a lot of our testing and school reforms. So we really want to honor and make sure that we see the pedagogy. And we talked about that at the beginning of this episode is what is the, what is the type of teaching and learning we want to see in classrooms? And then how do you leverage the resources and tools that exist today that didn't necessarily exist 20 years ago so that we can make sure we're connecting and evolving, but not necessarily ditching things that have worked for learners, which brings yeah. Oh, do you have a comment on that? that? No, I'm just saying, yeah. Yay! So this. Yay! <laughs> Amen. Spirit fingers. Where are your spirit fingers? Come on. Spirit fingers. <laughs> Final question. This is a good one from Amy McMillan. Uh, and it's. It, I know everyone's thinking it. Everyone's asking, how do we innovate when teachers are also under pressure to raise test scores? You knew that was coming, and close the achievement gap. It seems like the standardized state tests are the opposite of innovative. Test prep is alive and well. Mm. So um, I'll, I'll take a stab at this one. So I was an athletic coach before I was an academic coach. And, um, and I often talk about how um, one of the things that I coached was shot put, both boys and girls. And, um, and, and so one of the things that, that I always um, required of my, of my athletes was that they were going to throw heavy. We were going to throw heavy and practice every single day. And um, part of that is why do we throw heavy? Because then whenever we're in our um, kind of our assessment situation, then when we throw what's actually expected of us, you know, we have that much more distance. And, and so kind of going to um, a comment that, that you had made earlier, John, about like, how do we develop reading scores, right? Like, how do we um, actually improve upon these things? Well, we, you know, we work really, really hard and we dive into deep and complex texts so that we can really kind of tease out and, and, and really kind of examine those things. So, um, I taught, uh, what in, in Texas, what is called the student success initiative. So if you don't pass eighth grade reading, you're not moving along. You, um, you know, it's that high stakes. This is where we've got to come in here and do this. And, um, I, that was our, that was my approach was we're, I want for my students, whenever they take this, the assessment, to go, man, that was super easy. You know, that was not the measurement of my understanding. That was, you know, this opportunity for me to really kind of showcase that, hey, I, I do know what I'm talking about and coming in there. Um, I think that where that gets really complicated is if we see that assessment as the end-all be-all of what it is. Um, the other thing that I see on that is that, um, Oftentimes, we take a comment that can be brought to um, brought to somebody's attention of, or like, well, why are you doing that way? As kind of this um, defensive comment, you know, as a teacher, you should be able to justify, like, why am I doing twenty five minutes of silent sustained reading? Like, this is why, you know, if um, or this is why I'm utilizing this application, this technology tool because it's going to give me X, Y, and Z. Like, we need to be able to confidently justify our learning objectives and the pedagogy practices that go into that. And if we're not, if we're just doing the app to do the app or do the iPad to do the iPad or whatever the case is, then we're not um, really going to be able to deeply uh, answer that question. 
Yeah, definitely. So I'll jump in on that. And I, there's lots of language art stories here as middle school teachers. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things that we did when I was the coach uh, at our seventh and eighth grade middle school, I walked through classrooms and the tests were alive and well. And, you know, we were in full takeover mode. We were really, we were a low performing school and we were, we were already being taken over by this big company. And I was being pushed to make sure that teachers did benchmark tests every month on standards they had not mastered. They were end of the year standards, but that was the benchmark test. And they were pushing me and we just said no. And no one came and took me away. We said no. Um, But what we did is we focused on what we wanted students to do. And to John's point, we took away the basal reader and making sure every kid read the um, outsiders great book. But I walked into classrooms and kids were, had their hoodies on, they were sleeping and they were listening to the teacher read the outsiders and they were like popcorn calling. That wasn't teaching, that wasn't learning and that wasn't reading. So we ended up making, giving kids choice in what they were reading, spending time actually reading, and then teaching them strategies of how to engage with text and how to think about text and how to talk about text and how to write about it. And over the course of the year, really focusing on the skills we wanted kids to do, not the test prep, helped us think about, um, helped kids develop the skills and really think, see themselves as readers and writers. And although this isn't the end goal, at the end of the year, we doubled our test scores. So we didn't just meet the benchmark. We doubled our test scores and kids went from 30% proficient to 60% proficient because kids were learning how to read and write. And by the time the test came, they were prepared for that. So that's not going to happen. That that took a lot of work. It took a lot of time. But it also took a, a focus and a commitment to doing what was right for kids and supporting teachers to really think about giving their kids voice and choice in the classroom and not just going through a set of benchmarks and tests and analyzing data that wasn't really informing instruction. I, and I would like to kind of um, go back to, to John's statement of validating teachers. I think it's also important that we validate students in those ways um, because I think oftentimes whenever we look at those benchmark assessments or, or those standardized assessments, what does that feedback look like for the student that comes in if it's just the score and it's not an explanation of, you know, where this is? Like like to your point, Katie, of, of you know, we're assessing a standard that hasn't even been, you know, introduced to them yet. Of course, they're not going to do well on it. Well, you know, how does that feedback look for them so that then they can kind of, um, you know, build upon that knowledge and, and, and come back to it? Um, I know for, for our situations where we were doing assessments, um, oftentimes it was helping our students even understand what the, the question itself was actually asking so that then they could go in and analyze the text and, and move forward. And so, you know, again, helping the student have um, a as positive of an experience as they could, instead of just saying, nope, you got that one wrong. Sorry. Hope you do better next time. Awesome. It is six o'clock and we could go on forever and ever, but I'm going to ask John and then Rana to share your final thoughts. um, And then we will wrap it up. Yeah, I think my final thought would be, uh, I'm going to kind of answer that that, as, standardized test one and just say, um, 
that when you teach in a way that increases engagement, then you will increase learning and eventually that will lead to better test scores. Um, at the same time, I want to be clear that I, I totally empathize with any teacher who has felt that pressure. And I think we all do. And, um, it is a risk. And when you choose to be different, when you choose to take that risk and say, I'm not going to just teach to the test, um, you were in type of creative risk taking for your students that's transferable. Right. And that to me is exciting. Um, we know that a lot of these authentic teaching strategies lead to better test scores. Um, but at the same time, it drives me crazy that we even have to have these tests. Um, and so um, to everyone who's choosing to innovate in any kind of way, I would just say like, that is so cool that you're doing that and keep on doing it and know that your students are watching you and that they're seeing the risks that you're taking. And that is going to have a profound effect on them. I love that. So I would say um, one of the things that comes to my mind on that is um, when we look at assessment, are we looking at one vein of assessment or are we allowing for authentic opportunities for assessment? So I say that because like take, for example, um, your driving test right? So you have a written assessment, but you also have a performance assessment. So are we giving our students an opportunity? Can we innovate within the box of saying like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Like I, as a teacher, I'm not going to be able to stand up and say, mm, yep, my kids are not going to take the state standard assessment. I'm sorry, but uh, it's just not going to happen in this classroom. Um, I'm not going to be able to do that. But what I can do is take that, um, take, take those standards that are being addressed through that assessment and perhaps come up with a performance-based assessment that would then allow my students to demonstrate their learning in a different way. Is that then going to give them an opportunity to increase their confidence, to increase their fluency so that then they can turn around and say, you know what, I do understand this information. This is how I can represent that and get that in, get, get kind of the confidence in that so that then they can, you know, better represent that through the quote unquote standardized um, way of taking it. And and um, so I guess just to kind of like circle back in that of if we're talking about how do we innovate within the box, you know, it is saying like, okay, here are, here, here's the, the things that I've been given in my little chopped basket and I've got to, you know, keep these things going, but I can make it a little bit more palatable for different students in order to feel like they are actually um, able to demonstrate demonstrate their mastery of learning instead of just fitting into that single one way of making, you know, chocolate chip cookies, because that's the way that it's always been done. Awesome. I'm going to cheat and channel George just to close this out. And the standards tell you what to teach. They don't tell you how to teach it. And I think that in, is the essence of the conversation tonight and really thinking about innovating inside the box and understanding who you serve and what they need and how you can be creative and thoughtful to meet the goals and to help them get where they need to be. So that is it for our episode tonight. Thank you all who have joined and your questions and your comments. It's been another great conversation. Thank you, Brianna, for joining us. We loved your insights. Thanks, John, for being here and AJ, of course. Yeah.
to the community. Uh, we have are taking a break from our Wednesday Facebook Live. I think it's spring break, and Allison, um, I think we're going to take a break until next week. But we have our Twitter chat, always fast and furious on Thursday. So join us, keep blogging, keep sharing your thoughts, and we look forward to reading and learning from and with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.